28th, my friend. Mm -hmm. And we have been looking at Tyre, and we continue to look at Tyre, all the way back from chapter 26. Tyre representing, I think, the prosperous city, the economic superpower, and that God was going to be able to bring down. God is able to bring down any superpower, military, economic, or otherwise. And we're going to see some of the reasons why God brings Tyre down here. Chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man, and not God, God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself, and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. We are speaking specifically to... The leader of Tyre. And what is his problem? Thinks he's a god. What makes him think that? Things that he's accomplished. Yes. He is very impressed with his own achievements. Um, particularly impressed with two things, I think. What were the two things that were the evidence of his divinity to him? Wisdom and his wealth. Exactly. And he thought that his wealth came as a product of his wisdom. You know, he was so wise that he had gained all this wealth. And as his wealth increased, so did what else? His pride. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's, uh, he had an inflated ego to go along with his inflated prosperity. And uh, he got to where he thought he was a god. You know, and he sits in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. He was sort of like the sea god. Because you remember what tires... Uh, they were a merchant, uh, they were merchant uh, nation because they were a wonderful seaport. And so they shipping was their claim to fame. So they thought of themselves as sort of the god of the sea. And, uh, well, well that's, this is the indictment. This is the, this is the accusation against the king of Tyre. The next section we'll see the uh, sentence pronounced. Do we know his name? I don't, but probably somebody does. Well, we have the reign of King Ichabal, the second. Okay. Make yourselves at home. We're in Ezekiel 28. Is it just the two of you? Yes. Where's your dad? Ernest dropped us off. Oh. So who did you say the king was? Um... It to ball, I T T O B A A L the second. Where do you see that? In my footnote. Oh. <laughs> so it's a note, so it may not actually. No, well, that's, you know. that's, that, uh, we probably do know. I mean, by this late date, we often do. But I don't know. So. All right, other comments and questions on the first five verses. wiser than Daniel, that is the Daniel of Daniel. That's a good, I'm glad you mentioned him. I think so. That's a debated issue, but I think so. We discussed that before. Yes, we did, in chapter 14, where he speaks of Noah, Job, and Daniel. Yeah. And the liberal critics think it refers to the God, or the 
godlike figure, Danel, from, I don't know, Ugaritic literature or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, I don't see any particular reason to think that. After all, we know Daniel as the one who, who knew the secrets, who was able to reveal the mysteries and the... He discerned the dreams. The dreams and so forth, absolutely. I forget the passage, but there's a passage where it almost says, that's what that's saying, but I don't remember right now where it is in Daniel. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think you know, it makes more sense to me. And, and doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that, you know, God would use a pagan deity or a pagan ruler or whatever as an example. Uh, that's not such a problem here in Ezekiel 28, but it really was back in chapter 14, where he said, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were to stand before me. Now here, you know, I suppose the king of Tyre could refer to, you know, some other pagan god or whatever, but, but I think it's better to see this as Daniel. That we know. Why didn't he use Solomon or something? <laughs> Daniel was a contemporary. I mean, you know why the liberal critics do that? They do it because Daniel was not uh, around in Ezekiel's day, according to them. At least the book of Daniel and all the myth about Daniel. And they have to say that Daniel wasn't around then because Daniel has such detailed prophecies of the Maccabean period from about, well, down to, from 330 down to 160 or so. I mean, and the Ptolemies and Seleucids and all that, extremely detailed, which they have to post-date. Because to them, there is no God who can predict the future. So they have to make Daniel date at about 165. Well then, you know, the king of Tyre here couldn't possibly be referring to that Daniel. So that's, that's the motivation behind their ransacking history to find some other figure that could uh, fit this. Is the passage in Daniel we were looking for the one that talks about Daniel as having insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods? I think there may be another one as well, but... I think there's one that talks about him revealing the secrets or something, is what I was thinking about. But, but there's actually several prophets, <coughs> passages that say similar things. He was definitely known for his wisdom and known for revealing secrets. And that, that's what we know about Daniel in the Bible. All right, other questions and comments through five. Six to ten, the pronouncement of the judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of a, of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of your slayer, although you are a man and not God, in the hands of those uh, who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. <coughs> okay. Therefore, because he has elevated himself to a godlike status, 
what was God going to do? Bring strangers upon them. Absolutely. Who would bring them down, bring them down to where? The pit. Yes. And you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the sea. It's interesting to compare verse 2 with verse 8. Instead of being like a god in the heart of the seas, they would actually be brought down uh, to the pit, the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Uh, the very place where Tyre ruled the waves became the place of Tyre's downfall. And uh, they would end up uh, showing that they were certainly not God. They were a mere man. They would die the death of the uncircumcised. Most think that the people of Tyre practiced circumcision so that dying the death of the uncircumcised even for them would be a humiliation. And this is a certainty because I have spoken to Christ the Lord God. Comments and questions? Which destruction is this referring to? The first one? By Nebuchadnezzar? I think so. And Although I wouldn't rule out the fact that it encompasses both Nebuchadnezzar's and Alexander's, but I think primarily Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and being cast in, like being killed in the midst of the sea, would that refer to Nebuchadnezzar and maybe even throwing them into the sea when he destroyed them, or what would that be referring to? I think it's more figurative. Figurative? You thought you were the king of the sea, but you're going to sink. Yeah, you're going to sink. That's what I'd say. Sir? I was just going to ask who the most ruthless of the nations are, but that's basically been answered now. Yeah. Anything else on that? Well, this next section really depicts this uh, in great... Um, vivid colors, I guess. It's really like a funeral song, a dirge, a lamentation over the king of Tyre, but in doing so, uses some pretty extravagant language to describe Tyre, the king of Tyre's self-exaltation and his corresponding downfall. 11 and 19. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways, from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom, by reason of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings, that they may see you. 
By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. So, this is the lamentation of the king of Tyre. What uh, what was Tyre's self uh, analysis? What 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 was what was he like? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's pretty well it. You know, he's probably just about as high as you could get. Um, in fact, he's described in what uh, terms? Stones. Precious. All right, precious stones. Does that remind you of anything? Revelation. Yeah, everything <laughs> reminds you of Revelation. <laughs> Anything else? Nope. <laughs> These are. Do you know, sir? I'm wondering if they're like the stones on the covering of the, with the high priest and that little thing. Yes. I think what? these are like nine of, or whatever it's called. Yeah, these are like nine of the twelve stones on the high priest's garment. So it I may be. But it may be an indication that the king of Tyre is being described like a great priest. Maybe it's just decorative. I mean, that's a possibility as well. Obviously, precious stones like this are pretty uh, impressive. Um, but that, that, it's at least curious that uh, it is described in terms of, of what the high priest wore. So what do you say that means? Maybe that he's like a priest. The, the, the king of Tyre. He thought, thought he was. Yes, yes. He saw himself this way. I mean, where did he see himself as being? God. In Eden. In Eden. You know, he's in paradise. You know, he's he's like the original man. <laughs> you know, uh, he's, uh, in fact, he's better than that. Uh, verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. Uh, you know, you were there on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. I mean, he's like some great angelic being, a, a cherub itself, walking on the stones of fire. You know, almost an invincible being. Um, and just just perfect. I mean, you know, it kind of reminds you, there's a, there's a sort of a parallel with chapter 27, and then in chapter 27, Tyre was described as what? Do you remember? Wasn't that a ship? Yeah, a great ship. Yeah. And of course, what did Tyre learn to uh, its chagrin about the ship? It was like a Titanic. Yeah. It sank. <laughs> and Everything what, did. And what does, uh, what does the king of Tyre here learn about... Uh, being in paradise. You can be cast down and destroyed and yeah. etc. Even if you were in the midst of paradise. Exactly. Paradise can be lost. You can be kicked out just as Adam and Eve were. And uh, because that's what's going to happen. God's cast them out from the mountain of God. And uh, from the midst of the stones of fire. God, God's going to bring them down, bring the king of Tyre down, 
despite the King of Tyre's, um, you know, arrogance and and uh, just uh, I don't know, very uh, haughty uh, attitude. And what were some of the reasons that he gives here in uh, 16 to 18 for Tyre's downfall? Because of the abundance of their trade and how full they were of violence. Yes. They were, they were very violent in their domination of the trading uh, industry. I gather that they roughed up their competitors. I don't know. Uh, Remind you of maybe a, I don't know. A mob boss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, some of the mafia-controlled unions or something. And what else did he com- condemn them for? Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Yes, this pride that God hates. And, uh, boy, God brings down pride quicker than anything. Uh, and he wants to humiliate and expose and shame all those who are lifted up with pride. And what else were they being condemned for? They profaned the sanctuary? Uh, well, he would profane the sanctuary. I think that may be more of the judgment. Uh, but, but maybe not either, because he says in verse 18, In the unrighteousness of your trade you profaned your sanctuaries. I take it that dishonest trading practices, that, uh, you know, who knows what all shenanigans uh, Tyre pulled to make a quick buck. And so, you you know, thinking, uh, when, when the king of Tyre thought of himself as being like a god, why, you know, his presence would, you know, bless and sanctify the holy places. But actually, because of their unrighteousness, his presence would profane the sanctuaries. And God was going to reduce the king of Tyre to ashes in the eyes of everyone. Everybody will be paralyzed with shock and fear at the downfall of this great, you know, God-like, angel-like, Adam-like, you know, king that really becomes nothing. Comments and questions. So, this is what Tyre thinks of himself. Like, it's not what... Because, I mean, God tells him to tell Tyre this, but this is what they think of I think not. this is spoken in, in sarcasm. Okay. I think, you have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were Eden, the garden of God. You know, that's kind of what I see this as saying. You know, it's kind of... You know, almost taking jabs at the overstuffed, uh, you know, pride of the king of Tyre. So, what are these covering cherubs? I don't know. It reminds. I wondered if it was like the cherubim that covered the ark. Mm, they were the covering cherubs. Mm. Maybe like the idea of covering the, the presence. Word, remember? Cherubim. That uh, they uh, they covered the presence of God. I remember the presence of God. Yes, you're right. And the seraphim were the burning ones, right? That's correct. When we sang that song yesterday, I remember the seraphim. No, um, Almighty God beyond the veil. It's got the cherubim and the seraphim. Wow. I remember thinking these are burning ones, and these are not. 
<laughs> or a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, isn't it? That's all I got. <laughs> now, you know that this passage is frequently used uh, to discuss the origin and downfall of Satan. What? By those who don't believe in studying the Bible in context. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Where did they oh, I was yeah. going to say, I wondered why there were so many references to Satan in the footnotes. I'm going, that's what it is. Do with that. This and Isaiah 14 are the classic texts to describe the downfall of Lucifer. Oh, dear. <laughs> There's nothing like a good study of the context to uh, destroy all of our uh, great servants. Why was it Because, because I, I guess Satan was like a god and was in the Garden of Eden, and you know, I don't know. Here's here's what one. Yeah, yeah, you got it. One good. This section, with its superhuman references, apparently describes someone other than the human king of Tyre, namely Satan. <laughs> if so, Satan's unique privileges before his fall are described in verses 12 to 15, and the judgment on him in verses 16 to 19. Satan was the consummation of perfection in his original wisdom and beauty. And he occupied a special place of prominence in guarding the throne of God. And uh, by creation, Satan was perfect, but pride was his downfall. Satan's judgment, announced in these verses, will not be consummated until he is cast forever into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10. Here, Satan's position in God's government is terminated, though he still had access to heaven. Job 1.6. In the middle of the tribulation, he will be cast from heaven and restricted to earth at the beginning of the millennium. He will be cast into the shaft of the abyss to be loosed for a short time at the end of the millennium, then cast into the lake of fire forever. <laughs> I never got that out of it. I missed that part somewhere. Never even crossed my mind. That's great, though. That's ideal. That's exactly what's said. <laughs> I've, I've had arguments with people about that. Oh, I don't know, more context. Uh, I remember more in Brazil. You know, it's a very... But it's it's popular here, too. I mean, most of the more popular, non-scholarly studies of a place like Ezekiel will do exactly that. You know, it's, it's the common thought. I mean, that's, that's and it's not that it's not that crucial, but it's it's of a, a point of interest that, you know, you... you they, they're really looking for something to, to fit that theory, and it makes, I don't know, makes a good story. So yeah, that's what I see with it. I agree. Yeah, I, mean, I don't really know where Satan came from or what happened to him, and I don't have any particular problem with imagining that, you know, he was some sort of angelic being that fell. That seems like a logical conclusion to me. But I don't think this passage has a thing that to do with it. And, uh, so if that's the case... Is chapter 26 and 27 also dealing with Satan? I don't think they'd say that, no. This is the this is the part that clearly can't just refer to the human king, Tyre. It's a failure to see the, the figurative, exaggerated language, you know, that's intentionally sarcastic. It is saying more than what the king of Tyre was, and that's the point. You know, so often people are so woodenly literal in just reading this that they don't even see what it's trying to say. Just like Revelation. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, there's so much to be said for seeing a passage as it functions in its context. 
I mean, uh, I, you know, we've talked about this myth before, but I hear brethren constantly saying you should interpret every passage as literal unless it's impossible to understand that way. Oh, absolutely not. You should interpret every passage as God intends, and you have to look at the context to try to understand what God intends. There's not, no particular advantage of literal over figurative. Depends on the nature of the literature, the nature of the context. And uh, some of those some of those rules that we learn are not valid rules. Yeah, like the direct command and the approved <laughs> apostolic example and the necessary inference. You know, we we set those three rules, and but then we don't we don't live by them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hate it when we've got we're setting the rules like that because we end up fighting debates over our rules. shorthand. Right. rather than going back and really studying the principles and understanding them. And so, you know, we all can do that. I mean, we come up with some sort of phrase to describe something. And then from that phrase, we start debating. Who was I talking to? It seems to me like it was somebody in Brazil on this trip. I don't remember just now where I was or what it was about, but it was it was talking about free will. Anyway. Well, it was talking about free will. I think I know where I was now. But, and I, mean, I can't remember exactly the point that was being made. Uh, I remember who was making it, but but some non-Christian lady. But but you know there were several Christians in the study as well, and uh, she was making some sort of point as to how do you reconcile that with free will. Something about God's control or things that, I think it's like things that happen to you that limit your choices in the world or something because, you know, of this or that. And, well, but how do you fit that in then with free will? And I don't want the brethren tried to answer that or whatever. And I came back and made the point, well, you know, the first thing that we ought to say is free will is our terminology to describe what we see in the Bible. That is not a biblical mm -hmm. term to begin with. So fighting any battle over the term free will is useless. You know, whatever the Bible reveals, that's the truth. We've chosen to describe that by free will, but if there's something in the Bible that sort of limits the definition of that or makes us want to choose a different term, then fine. And, and the brother who was there said, yeah, he said, that's a really good point. Because we do do that. I, I'm okay with free will as I understand most people define it. But free will is not the place to make the debate because that's just our term to describe what we've inductively seen in the Bible. And, uh, but we do that all the time. And it's not bad. I mean, I don't know that free will is a bad term. I don't know that the guy who first came up with, hey, you can learn by direct commands, you can learn by examples, and you can learn by inferences, that was a pretty sharp you know, Absolutely. way of uh, making his sermon. So we made it a but then we start fighting a battle over that, yeah. as opposed to going back to what the Bible says, and then we come up with all sorts of bizarre things. We just have to keep going back to the scriptures. I think that's the key. And trying to do better, maybe, with trying to speak in scriptural terminology more. That's, we're not going to do that completely. But the rest we can. Hello. Yeah, we are. All right, see you in a bit. Bye. Can we digress, oh. like, big time? <laughs> this makes no sense, but when you were talking about the sarcasm, where is that passage in Judges that you love to use sarcasm? <laughs> oh, are you...
you thinking of like uh, Judges 5? I'm thinking it was with Deborah and Sisera. Yeah, Judges 5. Oh, with the milk in the party. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had to do with milk. Yeah. I know, she thought it was milk. milk. You want me to read it, eh? Yes. Is that in the book? Judges 5, 24. Oh, yes, that's it. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg, and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between his, her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. <laughs> I love that. But Dad, you read it like that, and you need to read Ezekiel in the same way, and then it makes sense. Yeah. All the sarcasm. And, yes, I know, I know, I know. I remember that. <laughs> There's a lot of hilarious stuff in the Bible. <laughs> the wiring's a little shorted out there. But That's going to help me remember his <laughs> I knew uh, Jail would come in good for something. Nothing else shall remind us of the Zika. Do you not see some similarities? They're both in the Bible. Yeah. They're both songs. Yeah, poetic. Yeah. So, so you were. Yeah. I do like that in, in Judges 5. But. I remember it, too. Uh, well, we are very pleased. Are you going to come up with that good stuff in Leviticus? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just, I just teach what's there. I didn't write. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, <laughs> anything else through verse 19? It's kind of interesting, looking at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And that just seems like so true of everyone, really. I mean, until until that sin happened, you were this perfect, blameless, righteous thing. But when it's found in you, then you've got your violence and your pride and your greed and your other sins and everybody will become appalled and terrified and you'll be no more and all that. And it may also be kind of another one of these uh, allusions to Adam. Other comments? Well, we finally... uh, proceed beyond Tyre to the sixth nation of uh, the seven that are being uh, judged here in chapter 25 to 32, and that is Sidon, verses 20 to 23. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Sidon, and prophesy against her, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I execute judgments in her, and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her, and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in her midst, by the sword against her on every side. 
Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay. So, who's Sidon? The paper of Tyre. Yes. Yes. And so appropriately comes in for mention after Tyre. And what's going to happen to Sidon? The Lord's going to be glorified in her midst. And just how is the Lord going to be glorified in her midst? Exactly. God will execute his judgment and show his holiness by bringing her down. His just judgment is something that glorifies God. He'll send the disease, you know, bloodshed, and uh, they will know that I am the Lord. So it's a rather brief prophecy about uh, Sidon. Certainly the length of these judgment prophecies against the nations are not the same. <laughs> and by somebody or other's count, that makes 97 verses of prophecies against the nations from chapter 25 till now. Three verses. Then we have a three-verse section a word, words of hope for Israel, and then another 97 verses of prophecies against the nations, making then our seventh nation, Egypt, of which there are seven oracles of judgment on Egypt in 29 to 32. So, I think I think that's all by design. That's not going to the, okay, I um, can't even understand my notes here. You had the 97 verses against the nations, the three verses of blessing, and then 97 verses against the nations again. Yes. But I don't understand my note about the seven nations and Egypt and Tyre. And uh, there are a total of seven nations that are condemned from chapters 25 to 32. So six. six. So the last 97 verses are all about Egypt. That's correct. And the verses against Egypt are divided into seven oracles. Like the verses against Tyre were also seven oracles, right? I believe they were, now that you mention it. Why do I have Egypt and maybe Tyre? Maybe Tyre also is seven oracles. Ah. Because I have little letters here, there, and yonder, and I had F at the beginning of chapter 28, and I'm thinking, you know, the one over the king would be G, and that would be seven. Is a seven some because of the number seven? I think so. How about the number three, obviously, is that relevant because of the number three? What number three? Oh, the three verses? No, and really, I, I don't think the so. The verses we did? We did the verses. So how did that end up at 97? It may be slightly coincidental, but the fact of the matter is, it's about the same quantity of material both before and after the center. The fact that it came out to exactly 97 may be more a function of chance. But the fact that this is dead, dead in the middle, this section against Israel, chance. is not chance. And, and the fact and the that the number of oracles is not, because that's, that's divided by what's said. There's tons of sevens in the Bible, and I think very often by design. I, I would say in a, in a passage like this, the seven is perfect. Oh, perfect number. Yeah. Yeah. So why so much time given to Tyre and Egypt? I don't know that I have the absolute answer on that. I think Tyre, because of Tyre being the world economic superpower at that time, and thinking of herself as being invincible, and she sort of becomes a uh, fall guy. You know, I mean, she's Tyre's the one that shows God can take down an economic superpower that thinks they're really 
Hasda. Egypt, perhaps more because Israel and Judah for generations turned to Egypt and relied on them. And I, perhaps that's the reason Egypt gets all of this. I, I mean, we're kind of guessing at some of those. Is Sidon side inland? Because Tyre's on the water. Is Sidon that's Not a good question. I think Sidon is pretty much on the water. Anybody got a good map? Oh, My map fell out. Yeah, it is on the water. It is on the water. Zarephath is in between. Zarephath? Where is it? Above the fire. It's about 20 miles north of. Tired. I have it. Cool. Good for you. And isn't Egypt mentioned in Revelation somewhere? Yes, in Revelation 11 8. Uh, yeah. Along with Sodom, just as a uh, an example of a really bad city. Yes. And the witnesses, where they were, were parading in the streets, right? Egypt would be the place that enslaves God's people and so forth. I think mean, perhaps going back to that in Revelation 11. I don't know. That would be great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was described. Yeah. Sodom of wickedness, Egypt of bondage for God's people, Jerusalem that crucified Jesus, you know, kind of all rolled into one. Well, anyhow, 24 to 26. These are the blessings, right? Yeah, this is this little section of blessing uh, for God's people. And there will be no more for the house of Israel a prickling briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorn them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely, and they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Alright. Perhaps one of the things that we need to see in this is that the judgments against the nations are a blessing and a message of hope for Israel. Where have I heard that before? Revelation. <laughs> and, yes, that the messages of judgment against the nations are, in fact, a message of hope for God's people. Because, as he says in 24, there will be no more for the house of Israel this prickling briar and painful thorn of the nations that were trying to bring them down. So God gathers his people, shows his holiness here, not in judgment, but in blessing for his people, gives them the land, they dwell securely, and he executes judgments on all those around them. So this is almost interpreting these judgments against the nations in terms of the blessing that that gives to God's people. And it shows that that, that what, when you see Israel, when you see God's people blessed and exalted, 
it's not because of their achievement that it's because the Lord intervened on their behalf. It's, you know, 24, 25, 26, or I, you know, I gather, and I gave, and I execute, and I am the Lord. This is, this is God's action to bring down the threatening nations and to exalt his people. I love the end of verse 26. I know I say it a million times, but um, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Uh, it's nothing they've done. Uh, God did this not because of anything they've done in verse 25, but manifest His holiness in the sight of the nations. That's just an awesome point to see. Uh, who's calling? Just a minute. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, are you coming? Okay, sounds great. Okay, yeah. Bye. Is oh, he gonna ring Chip's coming? Yeah! Did he bring you back? <laughs> <laughs> Jim school? Yeah. Chip, and I call his brother Dale. I don't ever remember his the case. His name is Josh. Josh. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Chip and Dale, I can call you. Hey, I used to call him chicken death. Nothing like having somebody that knows nothing, Chris, to start in Revelation chapter 12. Well, I'll tell you what. We're 14, aren't we? I'm almost done. I'm pretty much done with this anyhow, and I'll tell you this, and I'm going to tell you one more thing about the trip. Um, We're not studying anymore? No, it's about our time. Uh, Especially by the time I tell a couple things about the trip. Um, But while I was in Brazil, um, the house I live at in Jequia is Claudio and Hito with their kids, Israel, Claudinho, and Hebeka. Hebeka is 14. I think she's 14. And she's got a boy interested in her at the moment. And that has created quite an experiment. <laughs> Unfortunately, Hito promotes it.